Okay. While they're leaving, you guys, last week um, we had three missionaries staying at our house from Monday to Friday. And I didn't know two of their names. I just, they were going to call me when they landed at O'Hare Friday night. And they called and I'm like, that's great. We're, we're up. We're watching the game, the football game. And when they got to the, to the house, they announced, you know, they, we were introducing one another. And the man said, I'm Elijah. <laughs> now, it was funny, really funny, because I'd been working all day to, to totally wrap this up, get the PowerPoint done, the handout done, the lecture done, everything done, so that I could devote my week last week to taking care of the three of these people. So for him to stand there and say he was Elijah, I started laughing. <laughs> Yeah, so Elijah showed up, okay, uh, at my house and was there all week. Oh, my goodness. Hold on, because Anton's getting us up. Don't be this house. This is not fun. Do not be this house. A few more are leaving. Anton, are we recording now? Excellent. All right. We are in week four, surrender, days one and two. And day one begins with 1 Kings 19, verse 19, and the first word is so. So we have to back up to see what the so is for. And if you back up, you find just in the immediate previous verses, God tells Elijah to anoint two kings, one king over the enemy, one king over Israel, and then to anoint his successor. How would that feel? Uh, Elijah, you're not all that. Elisha's going to come and take your place. So that when the verse starts, so that's what's just happened. So Elijah is obeying God and going to anoint Elisha. With the call of Elisha in our study this week, the topic of mentoring was brought up. But if you look forward in your book, you're going to see the next whole chapter is called mentoring. So we've made a choice in the teaching. Chris and I are both going to be teaching on the next chapter in your study guide called mentoring. The whole day one through five is called mentoring. And so what we're going to do is one of us is going to cover biblically the topic of mentoring and the other is going to cover the scripture in Kings. So I encourage you today in your groups, don't get bogged down in the mentoring part of day one. Focus more on day two or the scripture of day one. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because we're going to come back and spend two whole weeks on mentoring. Okay. So use your time well in your groups today. Okay. All right. So We're going to pass on into chapter 20. Chapter 20, verse 1 says, About that time, King Ben-Hadad, and we're going to call him King Ben for the rest of the morning. It's easier. Of Aram mobilized his army, supported by the chariots and horses of 32 allied kings. They went to besiege Samaria, the capital of Israel, and launched attacks against it. Now, as a refresher, because most of you probably did your lesson last Tuesday and Wednesday, and now you're like, now where are we? So for those people, I just want to do a brief overview of the whole chapter, and then we're going to look at who is God. What do we learn of who, you know, our, our, our chapter is called, uh, the whole week is called Surrender. And if you'll notice on your handout, I titled this, To Whom Do We Surrender? 
So let's, um, let's jump in to chapter 20. And I thought a map might be helpful, especially for the visual learners in the group. Let's get our bearings. So there's a war going on between Israel and Aram. You see Aram up there to the north, the exact, and by Israel, I mean the northern kingdom, right? The 10 tribes. So we have some uh, key places and people that are happening in this chapter. Aram and then the people that live there are called Arameans. It's, it's exactly the same as Syria and Syrians, okay? The, the reason it's the Greek version, okay? The Greek version of Aram and Aram, Aramean, excuse me, is Syria and Syrian. Not to be confused with Syria, which is not showing up here, but it's more north, north, north. It's more north. You know, I went to speech pathology for my R's when I was a little girl. Sometimes it kicks right back in. So Assyria is more north than what's on our map there. And do you remember Assyria is, they're the, the very uh, powerful country, kingdom, who will eventually take over Israel and disperse them. So that's important to remember as we go on. Assyria, by the way, is present day Iraq. That's where Assyria is. All right. So look at the capital. The capital of Aram is Damascus. It was then. It still is today. Way up there. Okay. That's going to come back at the end of the story too. All right. So what we have is these two kings, King Ben and King Ahab. We know who Ahab is. Jezebel's husband saw the fire fall. All right. So they're at war and it's not just King Ben. He's got 32 other kings and their army. So this is a big army coming to lay siege on the capital of Israel, which is Samaria. Now, notice they're in Aram. So that means they have been marching across the country. Now, there wasn't Twitter then and Facebook and all this, but you can know the people know this is coming. This is a big army coming right towards their capital. So King Ahab knows like, hey, this, we're going to lose. So King Ben sends his messengers and says, you know what? You give me all your gold and your silver, your wives and your good children. I love that. Is he just going to leave the brats? I guess. I don't know. That's what scripture says. You read it. I'm not making this up. So King, King Ahab's like, yeah, we're going to lose this. Okay. And then King Ben comes back and says, no, just to be clear. See, I think King Ahab thought he's, he's just going to treat me like a vassal. So in other words, uh, I'll pretend like the stuff is his, but I'll get to keep it. And oh no, this was not any vassal arrangement that was going on here. King Ben sends another messenger and says, no, let's just be clear. Tomorrow, the king's people will come in and search your palace and other homes and take your gold, your silver, your wives, your children. And it says, and everything you consider valuable. Well, now King Ahab's like, well, that doesn't sound like such a good idea. So he goes to the elders and he says, well, y'all think about this. And, and, and scripture says the elders and the people responded, don't do it. So, you know, King Ahab's like, we're not doing this. So now King Ben is ready to go to war. And 
God sends a prophet. Now, interestingly, it's probably not Elijah or Elisha because he's not named. This gives me such good hope because look at what God is doing here. Just in this, don't miss this. He's using other people, not just the star of the show. That, I love that. It means he can use Chris. He can use Julie. Oh, my goodness gracious, he could use me. Uh, anyway, okay. That might not mean anything to you. It means the world to me. So some prophet, we don't know who, not Elijah or Elisha, comes to King Ahab and says, God's going to give you the victory tomorrow over King Ben. And Ahab asks for some details. And the prophet gives him some details of how this is going to happen. And the prophet tells him, so that you will know that God is the Lord. Does that sound familiar? Remember, that was exactly why God caused the fire to fall. So that they would know God is the Lord. So sure enough, the next day there's a battle. And Israel wins. King Ahab wins, just like God says. That's how it always will happen. So that's what happens. Well, then King Ahab is visited by another prophet and he says the prophet says to him again probably not Elijah or Elisha and he says listen it's not over you need to prepare because King Ben's coming back and he even tells him when next spring so and and so King Ahab takes this seriously now meanwhile the second battle, by the way, I want to show you while we're still with the map up here. So the first one was in Samaria. So here they march all the way across. The second battle happens up here. See much closer to the border in Aphek. And then again, I already pointed out Damascus. So just keep that in your mind as we keep going. All right. Okay, let's keep going. So when this second um, prophet comes to King Ahab to tell him, it's going to happen again. The war's not over. Meanwhile, King Ben's guys come to King Ben and say, listen, they won because their God is the God of the hills. And they thought this territory down here is very hilly. And so they said, that's why they won. If we'll do this again, but not fight in the hills. And, and it says, quote, there's no doubt that we will beat them. And the king says, Hey, great idea, guys. So that's why the second battle's up here, because this is plains, flat land. So that's what's going on. So now God sends a prophet again to King Ahab and says, it's okay. You're going to win tomorrow because I will win. And why? So that you will know that God is the Lord. You see how purposeful all of this is? Well, it says the two armies are poised for battle. There's a face-off. And, and it gives a description of the Israelite army. And it says that they look like, but the, this is in verse 27, but the Israelite army look like two little flocks of goats. I guess that's better than one little flock of goat, but you get the picture. This is bad. Two little flocks of goat in comparison to the vast Aramean forces that filled the countryside. So the odds are definitely not in Israel's favor, are they? Definitely not. But the prophet says, you're going to win because God says God will win so that you'll know that God is the Lord. So there's a face off for seven days. The battle begins. Israel wins because God said they would. So there's killing, walls fall. You read about it. King Ben flees into the town and hides in a secret room, it says. Now, kings, 
King Ben's guys say, listen, the Israelites are known to be merciful. I say we go and beg for mercy from them. So they put on burlap and ropes. Now the ropes are important because they signify supplication. The figure being that of the the porter at the wheel of the victor's chariot. So that's why they're wearing ropes. This is a real humble way they're coming and approaching King Ahab. And the guys plead for King Ben's life. King Ben isn't there with them. And King Ahab says, is he still alive? He is my brother. What? He's not your brother. Look at what this guy's doing. He's like trying to find some kind of alliance with this evil king. Now, we don't know why. Perhaps he's wanting serious friendship because he knows Assyria is a, is a mighty kingdom that's poised to take over. So maybe he's trying to make an alliance. We don't know exactly, but we can tell kind of from what happens that that very well could be what's going on. So Ahab actually invites Ben into his chariot. Well, aren't they cozy, right? So now... Here, King Ben and King Ahab are in the same chariot and they strike a deal. And King Ben says, quote, I will give back the towns my father took from your father. You see, the war has been going for a while. And you may establish places of trade in Damascus. See how far into the territory that is? So now King Ahab has rights all the way up into Aram or Syria. As my father did in Samaria. So now that he's got capital trading favors, right? And he got cities back. So they're like high-fiving, that's a deal. And Ben is set free. God sends a prophet again to King Ahab, but with a totally different message this time. It has nothing to do with war. It's a, um, a prophecy of judgment on King Ahab. And God tells him, you're going to die because you didn't put King Ben to death. And not only are you going to die, but Israelites will die too. The last verse of the chapter, verse 43, says, So the king of Israel went home to Samaria angry and sullen. Sounds like a toddler, doesn't it? Notice it doesn't say repentant. Okay? All right. In this chapter, what do we learn about our great God? Let's pray. Ah, Father, thank you so much for the gift of your word. Here we are before you, waiting for your spirit to show us who you are. We open our minds, our hearts, our ears, everything we are, we put before you now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The first thing I learn of who, it, oh, women's Bible study, and he's gone. Somebody please go find Anton for me. Michelle? Michelle just walked to the left. Um, so we'll keep going. The first thing, the blank you need to fill in there is God is sovereign. God is sovereign means he is preeminent in power and authority. Psalm 147.5 says, and I'm sorry you can't see all this. It is up there for you. You'll just have to trust me. How great is our Lord. His power is absolute. His understanding is beyond comprehension. Psalm 115.3, it's such a beautiful passage in all different versions. In the ESV, it says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. NLT says he does as he wishes. The NIV says he does whatever pleases him. Do you get the picture of what God's sovereignty looks like? It's actually a natural consequence of all his omnis. You know, he's omniscient, he's omnipresent, he's omnipotent. 
It's all his omnis put together. God has the power, the wisdom, and the authority to do anything he chooses. Another verse from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. They're on your handout at least for you. I'm sorry you can't read them up here, but all of these should be on your handout. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. This is God speaking, by the way. Remember the things I have done in the past, for I alone am God. I'm God, and there's none like me. Only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. Thank you, Anton. Acts 17, from the New Testament. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. In our scripture passage today, where do we see God's sovereignty? Well, do you see his plan? Do you see he's naming kings? He says who and what nations will rise and fall and when. He has prophets and he has the next prophet. Do you see his sovereignty? In verses 19, 15 through 16 in the chapter right before, God tells Elijah, remember, to anoint three different people. And then when God talks to King Ahab through his prophet concerning the battles in the verses 13 and verse 28, Why did King Ahab succeed against King Ben? Because he was so great and so powerful and had so many men. No, both times scripture is very clear. Why does he succeed? Today, I will hand them all over to you. And for what purpose? Again, very clear. God's sovereignty is purposeful. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Sounds like the Acts passage we just read, right? He longs for us to know him. Let's look at some other scriptures in this passage today showing God is sovereign. In verses 23 through 25, this is when King Ben's guys were telling Ben that the Israelites God, it's just the God of the localized deity. They just need to shift the battle from the hills to the plains and King Ben, King ben will win. Now this definition of God fit their God. Remember the localization of God's? This is why Jezebel brings her particular Baal from Tyre to the Israelites. Because this is their theology. Their theological belief directed their advice, their words, their actions, their thinking, and so does ours. And that's why it's important that our theology be accurate about who God is. Our God is sovereign. The second victory God gives them, uh, the Israelites, was in direct response to this wrong theology spouted out in verses 23 through 25. We see it in verse 28. The Arameans have said, the Lord is a God of the hills and not of the plains, so I will defeat this vast army for you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. God is sovereign. That means everywhere. And then in verse 27 of this chapter, here is his sovereignty again, right in our faces. This describes how the two armies looked in the second battle. Remember, what did they look like? I hear whispering, two flocks of goats. Not real frightening, two flocks of goats. The odds are not in Israel's favor, but that doesn't matter. 
because God is sovereign. That means everywhere, plains, hills, you name it. And every time, no matter the odds or the circumstances, God is sovereign. If the place or the circumstances affected the sovereignty of God, then God would not be sovereign, right? Do we all agree on that? Well, we probably should act like that then, right? Sorry. (laughs) Just hold a mirror up, talking to me too. But do you see how correct theology that God is sovereign impacts my words, my thinking, my actions, my advice? The odds on the battlefield of Aphek did not matter, and the odds on my battlefield, Boy, I'm having trouble with my R's today. Battlefield do not matter either. Why? Because God is sovereign and nothing is too hard for him. Did I put on your handout Jeremiah 32, 17? I don't remember if I put... Good, good. Okay. Oh, sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and earth by your strong hand and powerful arm. Nothing is too hard for you. There's not a loophole there. I'm so thankful. Now, I want to give a real caution here. We must resist simplifying God's sovereignty. To depict a God who must do everything that he can do. Did you hear that? That's really important. And you know, when these missionaries come through and stay with us, I always love asking them, what is God teaching you right now? What are you learning about who God is? And one of the three last week, not Elijah, one of the other ones, said, he's teaching me about his sovereignty. I'm like, no way. That's what I'm teaching about next week and what I've just been immersed in for the whole last week and all day of Monday, just verse after verse of the sovereignty of God, much more than what's even on your handout. It was so much fun. We sat there and talked about the sovereignty of God. Now, any analogy that I can give you or anyone else can give you always falls short when we're talking about our great God. But I, I, want, I want you to listen to this, and, and I, I pray that you will get the point of just how sovereign God is. So I've got this bucket here, and there's an ant in here. There's one little ant in here. Now, the sovereignty of me over the ant, does anyone question that? I got the ant. I can do whatever I want to with the ant. Now, if the ant tries to crawl out of the tin here, I have choices I can make. But that is not to be confused with, I'm not forced to do anything. I still make choices. So I decide, do I flick the ant back down? Do I smush the ant? Do I drown the ant? Do I let the, the ant come on out of the tin? It's, it's my choice. Do you understand what I'm saying? I am sovereign over the ant. There is a huge difference between my allowing the ant to leave and my being helpless watching the ant leave. Huge difference. If I don't actively hold the ant in the tin here, it is incorrect to think that I am unable 
to hold the ant in the tent. Right? This is the sovereignty of God. All right, let's, we got to keep going because we got to keep going. Back to the definition. God is sovereign means that he has the power, the wisdom, the authority to do anything he chooses. Whether or not he actually exerts the level of control in any given circumstances is absolutely 100% his choice. And I can trust his sovereignty because he is also loving and good and faithful and merciful and gracious and compassionate and holy. And I could go on and on. You see, God's sovereignty could actually be considered terrifying and even frightening if it weren't for who God is. To whom am I to surrender this sovereign God. An example from scripture, my favorite Old Testament story is Daniel 3:16, the three guys Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and they're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace because they have disobeyed the king's or the earthly king's orders and they're obeying the king of kings orders, not bowing down. And this is what the guys say. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. I got to just stop there. God did rescue them from the king's power. You know how? By their obedience to the king of kings. They were totally rescued from the power of the king. Whether or not God rescued them from the furnace, they were already rescued from the power of the earthly king. Do you see that? Okay, now let's keep going. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty, but even if he doesn't remove us from the fire, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. These three friends knew God as sovereign. And in the truest definition of the word, they trusted God's sovereignty. He is able and he will decide. That means I believe God is sovereign. Anything short of that means I really don't believe God is sovereign. All right. What about in our disobedience? Is God still sovereign? In other words, how much control does God exert over the will of man? Consider our passage this week in verse 42 of this same chapter. King Ahab, this is when King Ahab tries to usurp God's authoritative sentence of judgment on King Ben. In exchange, King Ahab strikes a deal and prospers. Ahab was unfaithful, disobedient in what was entrusted to him by God. Just like my disobedience has consequences, King Ahab's disobedience had consequences. God judges Ahab with a death sentence. Not just for him, but for the people of Israel. Ahab's disobedience did not just affect him, but the people of Israel. And oh, dear friends, my disobedience so often affects others in my life. King Ahab's death happens later. We'll come back to that at the end of today. God is sovereign with everyone, everywhere, every time, despite the odds, in my obedience, in my disobedience, God is still sovereign. He is absolute in authority and unrestricted in his supremacy. So what now what? When and where have I seen the sovereignty of God? Ladies, this would be a great talking point around your table. Especially if you don't want to talk so much about mentoring today because we're coming back to that in an entire weeks, two weeks worth of study. If I had time, I'd tell you of the time that God did not play the odds in my family at all. 
I wrote two examples down here and had to cut them both for time. I could tell you of God's sovereignty in another child's move to a foreign con- country that cannot be explained with any other word than miraculous, the things he did. I could not have arranged that. No, I'm a really good planner. Could not have done what he did. Could not have done it. God's sovereignty. I'm hoping each one of us can reflect in our lives, in our family's lives, and see God's sovereignty and be still before him. Remember his sovereignty and thank him and thank him again. God is sovereign and God is graceful. Now, for those of you listening without a handout, I'm spelling this grace, G-R-A-C-E dash F-U-L-L. I know it's not a word, but maybe it will help us remember this grace in our lives. God is full of grace, free and undeserved favor. When I was little, I remember the acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense, grace. In our passage today, where do we see it? In verses 13 and 14. Remember when King Ben laid siege on the capital of Samaria the very first time, the, the war that was happening there, and he made his demands and he countered with even more demands. Who did King Ahab go to? I'll wait for you. We're going to go over. The elders. He goes to the elders. Maybe it's because he wanted to get them on his side because if he did buck against what it was going to be war. I don't know why, but he goes to the elders. And then remember, scripture tells us the elders and the people both come back and go, don't do it. You know, stop. Nowhere does scripture show that King Ahab went to God. Or any of the people went to God. Or even asked, could you send a prophet? What about that Elijah guy who called down fire? From Could he maybe come to... Nowhere did King Ahab ask for God's assistance. Seems like no one is talking to or is listening to God. And yet God intervenes. God speaks. Not once, but three times God intervenes for King Ahab and the people. God is graceful. This is who God wants his people then and his people today to know. God is the Lord. So what now? What? How is God graceful? Am I living in the truth of God's saving, sustaining grace? You see, God's grace saves me, and then God's grace sustains me each and every day. What do I mean by this exactly? Let's look at a few scriptures to help us examine in our own lives. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, this is God's saving grace. God saved you by his grace when you believed and you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. So none of us can boast about it. Jesus Christ has already accomplished your salvation in his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. But like every gift, it is to be received. So if you have not received God's saving grace, you can do it now. You can stop listening to me. Be the best use of your time in all eternity to stop listening to me. And you could even do it right now. If you want to talk about it, I'd love to talk with you about it. I know your leaders would love to talk with you about it. Chris would, Julie would, Michelle would, Tiffany would. You can do it today. God's saving grace must be received. But it doesn't stop. His grace doesn't stop with my salvation. It sustains me. God's grace allows me to live in freedom Romans six fourteen, And for time, I'm going to ask you to read these on your own. God's grace is working through me. We see this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. God's grace gives me strength 
We see this in Hebrews 13, 9. God's grace is sufficient for me. 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. My grace is sufficient for you. God is my source of grace. My very source of grace is God. Hebrews 4, 16. And it tells us how do we access this grace? Through prayer. So what now what? Am I living in the truth of God's saving and sustaining grace? Note these yes or no, so what now what questions could and really should be followed with proof, right? The proof is whether or not I am reflecting God's grace to others in my life. And I had really fun time answering this, so what now what? How am I to reflect God's grace? And I went from head to toe. So in my mind, my eyes, my ears, my mouth, these are all scriptures. My shoulders and arms, my hands and feet, and even the way I'm dressed with what I clothe myself with. And it's not talking about material. I had to cut all that for the lecture, but you can do it yourself as you answer that question. It was a healthy exercise for my mind and heart, and I pray it will be for yours too. Who is God? God is sovereign. God is graceful. And last, God is merciful. In Hebrew and Greek, the word translates compassion, loving kindness, pity, kindness, forgiveness, empathy. A lot packed into our one little word, mercy. It's an extension of an expression of love. Mercy's forgiveness and compassion extended to those who do not deserve it. Now, you might be wondering, where in the world did I see God being merciful in this chapter? Because it appears that not only is God not merciful, but that God punishes King Ahab for being merciful. But let's look closer. In verse 42, at first this might look confusing or even contradictory. But let's back up to what we know to be true of God and God's own description of himself. He says, and I want to tell you something, you know, there's where things are found in scripture are sometimes hard in our minds to remember, but there's two scriptures that I, I, we just need to know John three sixteen, which many of you know, and this is the other one. If you want to know who God is, watch me. You're going to leave knowing where this scripture is all the live long days of your life. Even if you can't quote the scripture, you'll be able to find it. A really important scripture. What number am I holding up? What's the second book of the Bible? Exodus, Genesis, Exodus. What chapter are we going to be looking at? 33. And what's the verses? Four through six, four, five, and six. Did you hear that? It's a very important verse because God is describing himself. Where is it found? Don't look up there. Everybody just look down. Look at your shoes. Where is this verse found? Exodus. What chapter? And what verses? There you go. All right. You got that forever. Exodus. It's a really important verse. Exodus 33, 4 through 6. Some of you are going to go home and go, I think it's Genesis chapter 2. No, 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 no. It's a really important verse. In Exodus 33, 34, excuse me, 34. See? Well, now you won't forget because you got to correct the teacher. How fun is that? All right, where is it? Exodus 34, 5 and 6. 
Look what he says. This is what God says, who he is. He's talking to, to Moses, by the way. Yahweh the Lord. So he gives himself a name. The God of compassion and mercy. I'm slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. So God is merciful. We know that. So what's happening in this chapter? If God is merciful, what is happening? Let's go back to verse 42 again. Because you have spared the man, I said it must be destroyed. Do you remember the sovereignty of God? King Ben's fate was not up to King Ahab. It was up to God. And he had given King Ahab direct instructions. Now, we, we don't get those direct instructions in this chapter, do we? But I know God gave them to him because look what it says. Because you have spared the man, I said must be destroyed. So God did tell King Ahab to do this. And King Ahab chose, for whatever reason, probably political gain, to not kill King Ben to make a deal. All right. His sovereignty is such that God is merciful to whomever he chooses. And God declares this in Exodus 33. See, I messed up there. But that, the most important verse, they're all important, but you, under get, you get it, right? Exodus 34, 5 and 6. All right. We're not going to read the whole passage of Exodus 33, only one part of one verse. This is God speaking, and he says, I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. In the New Testament, this is again, I like to sh- give you guys Old and New Testament just so you see. In Romans 9, Read it for yourself, the whole chapter. In the middle of it says, in verse 14, are we saying then that God was unfair? Again, I encourage you to read the whole chapter. But in verse 16, for our time constraints, it says, so it is God who decides to show mercy. We can neither choose it nor work for it. You see, mercy and grace are the same in that. We cannot work for God's grace. We cannot work for God's mercy in his sovereignty. He generously extends it to us. So what now? What? How have I known God is merciful? Consider a few verses again from the Old Testament. Psalm 145. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. Ah, see that description of God that he gives himself in Exodus 34, 5 and 6 is repeated throughout scripture, oftentimes in Psalms. Lamentations 3 says, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And from the New Testament in Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, we see his mercy again. And then in Hebrews 2, we see his mercy every single day of our lives. The point of salvation again here and then also every day. As I'm being tested, I am tested every day. And then it's reiterated again in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. How am I to be merciful? Wait a minute. Am I to be merciful? Because it didn't work for King Ahab, right? Careful that we don't just snatch something out of Scripture. Let's understand what's happening, right? Yes, I am to be merciful because Jesus tells me in Luke six thirty six, Be merciful even as your father is merciful. The context, by the way, of this command is Jesus speaking. He's actually talking to his disciples. And you get all of the Beatitudes in this chapter, the golden rule, loving our enemies, and then be merciful even as your father is merciful. Then his teaching continues. 
tells us to stop judging others, talks about forgiveness, about giving, about fruit in people's lives, about building on a solid foundation. That's where this verse is couched. So we get this incredible teaching by the best teacher in the world. Jesus tells us what it means to be merciful. You should read that chapter. Luke 6. Well, there's other really good teachers in the world, none like Jesus, but there is a really uh, wise man, Rick Warren, and I put it on your handout there, the website for an article, Seven Characteristics of Mercy. I just changed the verbs on your handout to be more action verbs, but you can read the whole article. Each one of those are supported by scripture. This was helpful to me in answering the question for myself, how am I to be merciful? thought it might be helpful to you too. So who is our God? He is sovereign. He is graceful and he is merciful. So what now? What These are just three of God's attributes in today's passages. And you'll see there on your handout, I didn't want you to have to write these words because I knew we'd be at the end and you'd be tired, but there are incommunicable and communicable attributes of God. The incommunicable ones are ones that belong to God alone, like his sovereignty, right? I'm not sovereign. I I can't mirror God's sovereignty in any way. God is sovereign. So what's my response to be? Submit to his will, trust and obey. As our lesson is entitled this week, surrender. That's my response to his sovereignty. My response to his communicable attributes are to reflect them, to receive them, to receive his grace and his mercy, and then to reflect his grace and his mercy to all the others God brings into my life. The rest of the story for King Ahab, God declared death for King Ahab. And later on, on another battlefield in 1 Kings 22, you can read it for yourself, 29 through 40 is his death. Specifically, verse 34 and 35 is all we'll look at today. Listen carefully. An Aramean soldier, okay, we already know Aramean is the same as Syria, right? So they're battling the same people. An Aramean soldier, however, randomly shot an arrow at the Israelite troops and hit the king of Israel between the joints of his armor. The king of Israel is King Ahab. Turn the horses and get me out of here. Ahab groaned to the driver of his chariot. I'm badly wounded. The battle raged all that day, and the king remained propped up in his chariot facing the Arameans. The blood from his wound ran down to the floor of his chariot. wonder if it was the same chariot that he invited King Ben to come up in. And as evening arrived, he died. Talk about the sovereignty of God. Did you hear that? When Taylor was little, <gasps> when Taylor was little, um, <gasps> I'm going to tell this. Um, we, didn't, we didn't even have this campus we were all over on the other campus and we were trying to decide what to do with the little children for the second hour we didn't want to have to sit them sit through Sunday school the same thing twice so Chris Saros and myself and Ron Beers did children's church and this was our lesson this particular morning in children's church and when the lesson was I know right well you take them as you know I'm like no we're teaching the whole bible we're not going to skip over stuff they got to learn this obey um So we're teaching this lesson. And when it was over, I asked, what did you learn? And Taylor, my son, brilliant, (laughs) at six years old, he said, I wrote it down in this book so I'd never forget it. Hold on. God doesn't even have to aim. 
That is the sovereignty of God. Don't miss it in that scripture. How did King Ahab die? The sovereignty of God. A random arrow goes into the armor. In the, come on. The sovereignty of God. I can trust he is sovereign. I can trust in his sovereignty. It's not to make me afraid or fearful or dreading what's God, what's God going to do with me in the bowl. Is he going to smush me? You know what? No, because his whole character is in perfect balance with his sovereignty. He is just as loving as he is sovereign. He is just as merciful, just as graceful as he is sovereign. I could go on, but we can't. So I'm going to close with agreeing with John Calvin. It is a most blessed thing to be subject to the sovereignty of God. Amen. Amen.